Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This week on the Debunking Economics podcast, is there such a thing as good debt and bad debt? Or is all debt bad? Which is what I think my dad tried to teach me. Or is all debt good because it gets us spending? And if it's a bit of both, what's good and what's bad? Well, let's assume that is the case and try and define what is good for us and what is damaging the economy. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Uh, so look, there's a, there's a lot online and in magazines and newspapers about good versus bad debt. Uh, but obviously, these are things which are written from a, a consumer finance point of view, telling you the bleeding obvious, really, that, you know, credit card debt is bad debt because it costs so much and it becomes a death spiral. We all know that. But what about which debt is good or bad for the economy? So, And we know quite a bit about that, Steve, because we've spoken about this so much in the past. Uh, we know government debt is better than private debt because government debt could be covered with created money, bonds can be issued and bought by central banks through quantitative easing and the like. And we've seen quite a bit of that lately, and we're likely to see more of it again, I suspect. Bad debt, we know, is private sector debt, because if it keeps rising, it can create asset bubbles, which will burst at some point, such as Australian housing, for example. But uh, at its simplest level, if you lend me some money, I mean, it really doesn't change much, does it, really? I, If you give me some money, I've got some money to spend. You don't. When I pay it back, you've got the money to spend. It doesn't impact the economy in any way at all, does it, if it's just between the two of us? Well, it, it does in the sense, <laughs> you know, I'm experiencing that right now uh, in that uh, uh, you, what you get is less demand coming out of it when it's peer-to-peer lending because uh, you're not creating additional credit to begin with. And, yes, well, somebody else getting borrowed money uh, reduces the spending power of the lender, and um, and you have constraints, you know, credit constraints, which can hit both parties. So um, it's it's really in terms of the, the bad, the good versus bad. That I'm focusing more on what the financial sector does, and in that case, I think the worst debt is is household debt for buying houses because yeah. that's what's caused the asset bubbles we have. But the example you know that we've talked about in the past is uh, you've you've lent some money to your sister. You've mm-hmm. got, you've got. She's using it to to invest in her business. So her business is growing. Yep. As a result of that, so she's you know helping create some some wealth for her. You're out of pocket for it for now, but when she gives the money back to you, then you've got that that money to spend. It's just a time lag effect, isn't it? But she's she's benefited from that in the meantime because her business oh, has yeah. grown as a result of it. She has. I mean, she got a $75,000 a year cash flow she wouldn't have had otherwise. And, you know, in terms of that cash flow, then she could finance me back if she could borrow the money to finance me back. But, uh, you know, as I've explained in, in a couple of podcasts for uh, a couple of posts for, for, for patrons, um, that hasn't happened because of all things the Royal Commission exposed how badly banks had been lending to superannuation firms through which she'd actually. Uh, arrange the business and they won't lend a superannuation firm so she can't pay me back so you know we're well and truly constrained so i'm i mean it's given me an interesting angle on the good versus bad debt story because 
as well as, you know, I'm part of, I'm on the advisory board for Positive Money UK and Positive Money favours uh, effectively abolishing the capacity of banks to create money. And I'm, I'm ambivalent for a number of reasons uh, because I think that what banks should be doing is providing working capital to existing corporations and finance for entrepreneurs. And in the case of my sister's uh, um, loan from me, that should have been a bank loan, which in this would have been like a loan of, say, 700,000 700, Australian dollars that would have enabled her to develop two blocks of land that would have generated $150,000 per year of income. And that she's, we will and truly know that now because like her current business is 100% occupied and she has uh, existing demand for again, half again as many, as many sites as she actually has uh, is a storage facility. Uh, so it would, have, it would have worked domestically and therefore there would have been a debt of say $700,000 generated in, by the local branch of a, of a well-functioning uh, private bank. And that would have meant, um, uh, yeah, uh, needs to drop me a cup of coffee here, mate. Pardon me. That's all right. That's all right. Pick up. Yeah. Um, yeah. That would have meant, uh, you know, $700,000 of debt generating $150,000 per year worth of income, which would have, if they were charged the interest at, uh, say, 5%, that would have been 35000 out of 150000 The bank would have made a nice living. Sh- uh, my sister would have been making a nice living and there'd be a more a larger domestic, a larger local economy than there otherwise would be. And would that money from the bank, would that be money that the bank had created or would that be simply the bank repurposing money that had been given to it as a deposit? The, the bank that had created the money. This is the thing. The, mm. the creation of credit, when it then enables a business to operate, can give you a, a viable economy. You don't have to have... Um, you know, interest overwhelming the economy. This is, I mean, I, I've done... So Roy models. Langston, the reason I brought this up, yeah. we were talking about yeah. this today, is because Roy Langston, one of our listeners, um, says that, because um, you'd said just this before, that in uh, banks should be able to create money if it, if it enables productive capacity or for somebody to start a business. But his point yeah. is, uh, shouldn't that money basically be funded from someone's savings rather than the, the bank creating it? He says if the banks issue the debt, he says that's at odds with, you know, your call for a, a debt jubilee. We only need debt jubilees because banksters, he says, I like that term. I'm going to use that more. <laughs> banksters uh, always issue too much debt in the first place. This is an interesting question about what jubilees actually were for, because if you look at Michael Hudson's research and David Graeber's and so on, Cornelia Wunsch in the very first instance, um, what they found was the jubilees were against household debt. They weren't against business debt. Now, if you go, wait, wait, this is talking historically, looking at the early Sumerian civilizations, when there was household debt, Often it was incurred, and this is quite amazing, but I think... It, because it's not speculative. Is that the is that Well, the not issue? just that. A lot of the debt was incurred in, in, in alehouses because you would be actually drinking in the alehouse, <laughs> not able to pay for it, borrow it, and then and then find you that the harvest wasn't what you expected. So you became... Well, it's funny you should say that because I was thinking, you know, the money that you gave to your sister, uh, you know, uh, which she can start a business with, I, you know, I think that's a good use of that money because you're in Amsterdam. You would have just smoked it all away, wouldn't yeah, you? That's dead right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, good. Very funny, mate. You'll pay for that one later. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's it's making productive use out of money which is sitting idle. And that's why I first offered it to her because I had you know one point two million in my super. I didn't right. need it. I was earning a full time salary. She had uh, blocks of land she couldn't develop. 
Uh, yeah, I've, but it would be better, you're saying, if the bank had done it, if the bank had created that money, and you don't see a problem with that. That no, doesn't sit aside from your debt jubilee because it's not household debt yeah, no, uh, that we're talking about. Let's talk about you know, what, what are the mechanics there because, again, the, the, uh, even though I, I have modelled, that my original Minsky model was a business borrowing, which specifically was creating f- extra uh, physical resources for um, productive use, nonetheless could have a debt a debt collapse. So that's the stylized model I did of Minsky back in 1990. Two, um, showing that if you had capitalist desire to invest being uh, low, then you could reach a, you know what we call a good equilibrium with a lower rate of with a lower rate of, of growth, and you'd otherwise get low level of investment. If you had a higher desire to invest, what you actually got would be a runaway debt bubble, and that's what we actually experienced. So I've modelled the financial crisis with 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 what you might call good debt occurring. So even good debt can get you in a bad situation. But if you look at uh, at the bubbles that have occurred throughout history, what's been the actual outcome, then it's normally been borrowing for land. Uh, even even the Great Depression, the nineteen twenties which we, we know we call the Roaring Twenties still. Uh, Richard Vague's research on that, which, of course, I highly recommend people read, you know, Richard's new book, A Brief History of Doom, by going right back to original source documents, he has shown that a large part of the bubble of the 1920s was actually a real estate bubble. Hmm. doesn't turn up on the data anywhere near it does. Like, you know, obviously, people don't look back at the subprime and clearly that's a housing bubble. Uh, but but even, even the roaring 20s, which I normally think of a share market bubble, actually began as a property bubble. So the bad debt is lending to finance uh, assets Speculation, particularly in housing, and and but if you look at the other is side, is it as simple as that? If we look, at, if we look and say, well, okay, if banks create money to uh, to offer as debt, if they give it for for speculation in housing, that's bad. Investment in 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 businesses is good, but you know that seems like a very clear line. Is it? Is it a you know? I mean, it, it seems simple, but in reality quite complicated and more complicated, but, but, but that, that that is a reasonable bottom line because again if you look at what caused the the, the big black the 80s bubble uh, which was just a you know the, that was the, the milk and junk bond era that was another way of generating debt for for, for companies that, that couldn't get uh, loans from the from the fight from the uh, actual banking sector. So all these junk bonds were created and Australia you know you were you living in Australia back then or it was before you moved there. I moved in 91. Okay, after the whole thing. Well, I, I lived through the whole thing. The, the scale of speculation, the scale of, of bubble activity was just laughable at the time. It was clearly going to come crashing down, which it did in 87. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was borrowing people borrowing money, to again, for financial speculation. So if I think you can see two wasteful ways in which money is used. One is money being used to finance speculation on on housing assets and the other being used to finance speculation on share market assets. But yeah. if you could restrict uh, the, the money created by the banking sector to finance actual businesses, both existing and you know, potential ones put forward by entrepreneurs, am I defined as people with a good idea? Yeah, yeah. but it, yeah. I, I go to my bank and say, hey, I want you to create some debt for me because I want to start a real estate business. Uh, and uh, we're going to start buying and selling properties. What do, I mean, where's the line drawn there? Because well, they'll you know, say yes. They'll say yes to that. They will say no if you want. Is to that go, good or bad debt? Bad, because again, it's financing asset bubbles. It's it's something connected with the. No, I'm running the business. I'm not buying and selling. I'm I'm buying and selling <laughs> houses, but I'm running the business that's doing that. So yeah. I'm making I'm making money. I'm paying wages. What's wrong with that? I mean, which in a way, in a way, your your sister has been buying. Uh, real estate for storage and she wants to buy more of it she's but in the that, same game 
But that, that, that is a productive use of land because, again, mm. you're, what you're doing is you're building a business which uh, you know, provides a service that people wish to, wish to take advantage of and you can actually sell the space. Uh, you can't sell the kids yet. I'm still wondering that's going to happen. But, um, but, but the housing, when you're talking about places used for residential purposes, there's no reason why um, the price of that should be, should be uh, financed by, by, by speculative lending. But that's indeed what has happened and they're given these huge housing bubbles. So I can still see, like if, if you go back, and this is one of the books I'm writing keen on money, I've started with the example of a Jimmy Stewart banker, you know, from, the, from it's, a, it's a Wonderful Life there. Again, he was a running a, you know, a savings and loan effect, which doesn't create money. But fundamentally, he was somebody who could make loans in the local business based on the knowledge he had of who was worth lending to and who wasn't. And what you get out of that is it, it's, it's possible to have, and this is what I've also modeled my Minsky software, it's possible to have a viable uh, economy in which banks are creating uh, money, which is then used by businesses to finance both investment and hiring workers. And what you get out of that is a society where the bank, of course, has to have positive equity, otherwise the bank is bankrupt, so the bank maintains positive equity. It's possible for the household sector to have positive equity too because if the workers are just being paid wages and aren't, being, aren't borrowing money, then they'll accumulate a positive bank balance. They'll have net, net positive equity. The, fine, the, the sector that has negative equity in that system is actually the firm sector because this is when I, when my, my accounting vision for how you model a monetary economy uh, makes this obvious. If assets minus liabilities minus equity has to equal zero for everybody, which it does as the law of accounting, and if banks have to maintain positive equity, then part of your society, if you don't have a government sector in there as well, part of the society must have negative equity. Now, can the household sector afford negative equity? No, because you're not actually making any money out of the house unless an asset bubble occurs and that's where we get trapped. But the firm sector can have negative negative equity. Its liability can be greater than its assets. But the turnover of its assets, of its liabilities, the the turnover of its uh, bank accounts Selling, buying and selling, selling, producing goods and selling them to the public and to the banking sector and so on can mean they can finance the outgoings yeah. on that quite successfully. And yeah. that's that's the vision I have that I would like to see a finance. Well, it's an essential that. part of growth, isn't it? Really, it's difficult yeah. to grow without being in debt. But it, but from the from the banking point of view, I mean, if if the banks didn't issue any debt money, then we'd have more of a handle on on the control of of money and circulation. This is a point that Roy makes as well. Mm. Um, don't, don't we just want to ensure that we have enough debt free fiat money to be able to to stabilize prices? And we can only do that if we stop private banks issuing this money because we have no control over that. Well, I, I mean, again, I think I, I would I want to see a, a hybrid. My vision of a of a, of a successful financial sector is a hybrid in which you have government created money largely being directed at, at both uh, living condition situations like as we're talking about re- recently pensioners and students getting having an income that means they can survive despite the fact they're not working uh, that's one essential and then building large-scale infrastructure that again is something the state would do that's maintaining the roads building uh, building transportation systems uh, building the universities and schools in the first place um, you know, health systems and so on. Uh, and that's, that's, a, that's the sort of stuff you can centralise and you do have to have at the macro level. But when you come down to what happens at the level of you know, the, the local region you're in, then 
if you have local businesses that need working capital, they're not going to be getting it um, from the central creation of money, nor are they going to get it from, uh, even if you have banks being able to lend out of a reserve account, which is the idea of positive money, that banks could still lend, but they'd be lending from a specific account and each loan they gave would reduce that amount of money, uh, therefore putting you in a, a, effectively a loanable funds world. Um, that, that world would have a tightness of credit. Um, and we've seen instances of this in the past. I'm experiencing it right now, that you would actually like credit to be more elastic. Well, local banks will only lend you money, let's be honest, mm. if you can put down an asset, which is normally your house. I mean, they, yeah, they, and that, that, not- that's, again, the whole asset-based foundation we have in modern finance. And I want to get rid of that foundation. I want to say you, you can't use that at your base. And that's why my sister's loan applications were all rejected because the value of her house was not sufficient to back the – um, loan she needed to develop the blocks of land she had that were the basis of the successful business. But once mm. I provided her with that money, I mean, these blocks of land, which I would have a, a she's hoping to sell one of them for about $200,000, uh, that's all they're worth. But when there's undeveloped land, but once she put the, the storage sheds in with my three, 330,000 financing building the sheds, then the valuation of that block of land, because they're now making 75000 dollars a year, the valuation's gone well past a million dollars. So then her asset, if she actually went to a bank now with that asset, so, oh, that's really good. We'll give you a loan against that. It's the whole idea of lending on the basis of valuation of assets. But does that need to be, does that need to come from, does that need to come from creative money? So you, you gave that money to your sister and you, you know, you're paying, you're paying the price for that short term. But if you, if there was a, if there was an incentive, so for example, and this is another suggestion from, from Roy Langston, Eliminate tax on income from productive investment. I mean, I'd say you could, you know, go further than saying, well, okay, maybe you should get some sort of tax write-off for having lent the money. So you sort of engender peer-to-peer lending where there's a there's an incentive, and maybe the bank becomes the intermediary to all of that, and that is fine. But they are just an intermediary; they're not actually creating any money. They're just using uh, using money from savings, and there's some sort of tax investment incentive to ensure that that's going in productive investment. That might then jolly along the banks to say, well, okay, uh, there's an element of risk here involved in this, but there's a tax incentive which negates that risk. Yeah, I'm, I'm still, my concern is that I still want to have some money allocated by people who are willing to take a risk. And this is where the idea of completely centralising money creation by, you know, a government body that decides how much to create each year and then dolls a certain amount out that banks can lend and make an arbitrage profit on. Um, I have several fears about that. One is One is that the... Um, by far the major source of profits for banks these days is the whole revenue effect of, uh, of being able to create the money and charge a margin on it. If you, if you, if you think about it in sort of conventional um, stylized economic terms, you've got, a, you've, got a price, you've got a margin effect and a volume effect. Now, because they can, they, they, they're price times quantity, they, 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 the price margin they've got is the rate they're paying for the cost of funds minus uh, subtracted from the amount they're making uh, lending out those funds. That might be like about a 2 or 3% margin. Um, but the major source is that they can actually create money ab initio and that, that enormous uh, quantity effect uh, makes up for the very thin margins. Now, if you take away the quantity effect, you're only left with the margin. I have a fairly strong expectation that the banks would not be profitable anymore. Mm. Uh, and a bank's not profitable means that side of your financial sector breaks down. And that is ugly. Um, 
We haven't had a crisis like that, but we know what banking crises do in general. Uh, you have to maintain the profitability of the banking sector in the sense that to be a bank, assets minus liabilities must be positive. Now, if you find yourself where uh, you can only make a profit by lending out from existing fund, so you've got a physical constraint there, and a large number of the loans you make are going to fail anyway, so you're going to have bad loans carrying your books as well, then if you're just making you're likely to be extremely conservative in how much you lend because you want to you want to have an almost a rock solid guarantee that whoever you lend to is going to be able to finance it. That means you won't be funding for truly speculative ventures when a lot of the progress in his society has come out of truly speculative ventures. Yeah. So you know you're not going to fund Elon Musk to go to Mars, for example. Uh, <laughs> Uh, because maybe well, Bezos will get house, isn't, house isn't big enough to uh, to to act as a deposit on it if it doesn't yeah, happen. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's the sort of lending <laughs> that I want to continue, and I want to find a way of of enabling the finance mm. to do that. But, and I really don't see how it's possible, um, un, unless you either got to underwrite the banks dramatically for for losses, which I know Richard Richard Vague is one of our one of my patrons, and. You know, he knows far more about banking uh, than I'll ever learn because he ran he ran two very successful financial corporations. Um, he would know the you know the the, the dangers, uh, the, the fragility of the banking sector already when mm. they've still got this bonus from increasing volumes of credit that they can create. If you take that away, then the odds of failed ventures are much much higher. The odds yep. that they won't end are much much greater, and you'd have to get very constricted. Well, it's dangerous. It's dangerous, isn't it? Removing risk from banks because they will just yeah. take more risk, and also uh, because there's more money slashing around, obviously pay themselves even bigger salaries as a, as a result of it as well. If you're going to underwrite, how much of that is going to be helping to support their salaries? But I I, I wonder whether Sharia law has uh, is worth having a look at on some of this because under that, my understanding, and I know we've got listeners who are. Uh, closer to this than than we are, but mm. my understanding is, and it's perhaps an interesting podcast in itself. But my understanding is, I mean, you shouldn't be able to make money from money. You can only earn profits by working for it. So that would mean banks can give you loans, but you need to work for that loan. In other words, you need to st- take a stake in the company, which is, I know, something that you've you've talked about as well. Maybe. You know, bank bank should uh, bank should have become a shareholder in your in your sister's business. This this is the other possibility of being equity based uh, lending rather than debt based lending, yeah. and that's what Sharia law fundamentally is. So the idea is you can only take a uh, you can only get a you can you can you can get a dividend stream from a business. You can't get a debt stream. The debt stream is a guaranteed return. The dividend depends whether whether the business performs or not. So the Sharia law idea is to say yes, you can you can take a share in the business. But you can't charge a flat rate of interest, and of course, there's all sorts of tricks used to get around that. Often, by some, you know, less than legitimate Sharia law um, ent- enterprises. But fundamentally, the idea is that you get a, you take an equity position, and you benefit out of both capital appreciation and the dividend flow, but you don't have a guaranteed source of income. Um, then that is something I would like to have as part of it. But actually, one one of our listeners, and this is a, a very good point, uh, said that the last thing she'd want to have is some bankers on her board. Yeah, (laughs) I know. uh, And particularly bankers who are funded by having created the money in the first place versus other people who uh, who put money in from hard work. You know, it's 
it's like, isn't it a bit too easy for them to get in on these companies? And also their orientation is all in the short-term return rather than long-term return. Absolutely. So there are, there are certainly there are serious issues about it, but I'm still very conscious of the, the fact that first of all, in, in like in a hypothetical sense and in, in my own experience with, with Carmel's business, I can see ways in which it's quite feasible to have banks providing debt-based finance to local entrepreneurs uh, to come up with, with to, to finance ideas which otherwise would not be financed and where both the bank and the local business and the community can benefit from it all. Um, and But if you take away the credit creation, then they're going to be in the same situation I was. And the only reason I made the loan was that I felt I didn't have any need for the money, which was true when I made it. Two years later, it's not true. Mm. And and um, if you're like if you're in a permanent situation of being a bank, rather than the temporary one as I was making a, you know, a family loan, um, then it becomes a, potentially you'd be you'd be applying the same tightness that I would now apply if I look back. You know, uh, willingness to lend to be much much lower, and you would therefore have a potentially a credit constrained system. Now this can be it's, it's not like having a financial crisis, uh, but it can be one which which is very stultified. And I think that this is when I make this case to positive money uh, colleagues all the time, that you have to be aware of the, some of the advantages of a flexible money system, which you cannot, I don't, I don't say you can't do it, but it's very, very hard to do it if you're doing a, um, we're going to tell you how much money you can create, uh, here's a pool of money, that's it, we've set the maximum. Um, and then you go make a profit on the on the margin of your loans. Well, if the margin itself is is already thin, and then secondly, you know if you can lose money if you give to the wrong person, then the wrong person could be the person with the bright idea humanity needs that never gets funded. So you know, I, I think we have to see a potential for symbiosis. Uh, mm. where we currently have parasitism. So it would be good, wouldn't it, to see then a situation where we had uh, local bank managers who could make lending decisions, who could create money if they if they needed to, so long as <clears throat> they were keeping it within the right ratio for, for the equity that the bank has. The problem is, of course, the equity is all, uh, you know, very centrally controlled, isn't it? I mean, it's, it relates to a big bank uh, with a, a chunk of equity, it might get more from from profits as it goes on, but it's not there at the local level. And uh, I, I, community banks, I mean, aren't they going to struggle mm. to uh, achieve the, the, you know, exactly, that like, level of equity to to be able to issue all these loans? Well, but in fact, they, they, this is one Richard Verner's points, and of course, I recommend people take a look at Richard Verner's work on 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 bank created money. It's very 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 consistent with mine, but he has but he's more of a a deep foundation in the actual micro of how banks operate and so on. And he very strongly sells the advantages of the German system where there are lots of local, local banks and a lot of the loans or businesses are made by local banks who do know their local customers. I mean, my, my favourite example, I think I've told you this one before, but it's, it's still <laughs> those delightfully funny incidents, uh, was I was invited to a conference in um, not not Berlin, but one of the one of the major cities, Bonn in Germany, and was taken by my host to a, his town 130 kilometres away. And he said, "Let's stay at my place rather than the local hotel." Found herself in a town of 5,000 people. Happened to be July the fourth. That's the day that the local um, Philharmonic from from Bonn turned up to give a performance at the local extinct volcano the, around the, the Caldera Lake. Well, the whole town sitting there with this beautiful orchestra, you walk past a, a couple sitting on a park bench, you know, Helga and uh, and uh, God knows who. And as a host and producers, we Heinz. chat. Well, Helga and France, thank you. Um, 
walk, walk away to take our seat on the grass. He says, they run the, the biggest business in the, town, in the town. I said, what's that? Expecting it to be Bratwurst. And he says, satellites. All right. They make satellites, town of 5,000 people. So these were a couple of engineers who were, you know, financed by the local bank uh, mm. because they were recognised having the expertise and bang, they built up a very successful business in a town of 5,000 people making satellites. So what's that stop? What's stopping that happening in places like Australia and the UK where it's all much more centralised? Well, that's the thing. It's just more centralised. My sister's case, I mean, if, if, uh, if there'd been a, a local bank manager making the decision, she would have got the loan in a heartbeat because she had a success record of running a trustworks business uh, you know she was a you know, I mean she's the treasurer on the local golf course I mean she got all the all the ticks all the credentials you want and a damn good business person a damn good manager of money she would have got it in a heartbeat instead she walked into the bank filled out a form the form got sent to Sydney the Sydney said not enough assets bang no loan that's been going on for 15 years so the centralization means the decision isn't made we're using local knowledge. When local knowledge is the only you can use to know whether you should make a loan or not to a, to a business. So at the risk of being uh, this a, a podcast about bank bashing, well, <laughs> well, well, why not? Um, Indeed, the, yeah. <laughs> the, um, there are you know obvious forms of bad debt that come from the finance sector. So credit card debt is just a con by the banks, obviously applied to those who need money the most. You get payday loans, are another example from the finance sector, bank overdraft charges, uh, higher purchase agreements, always for financial institutions to make money from debt. That's all bad debt. Uh, to some extent. I mean, again, some consumer debt, again, gives you flexibility in aggregate demand that you actually want. And you take a look at the aggregate data, you find that even though like some people get themselves caught very badly with credit card debt, there's certainly individual, massively bad individual cases. In yeah. the aggregate, there is no trend to um, the level of, of, um, of credit card debt. It's up and down at different times. It, even when comparing it to the interest rate, it doesn't move all that much because, of course, the interest rates are so high on that credit card that they can have massive changes to the base rate and no change to the credit card rate. Right. But so, overall, the high, so the high rate is, put, is putting a cap yeah, on it. It, it tends to flatline. Then you look at the business debt, and even with business debt, yes, we've had a rising level of business debt over time, but it's cyclical. So like in Australia's case, the level of business debt was at its highest in 1987. And even though it's been up and down with the booms and busts of the overall trade business cycle, which of course it partly creates, um, that that level hasn't been exceeded. Now, with household debt, went from 20% to 120% of GDP. Yeah. Because people are caught on this belief that, you know, house prices always rise, therefore borrow money, which causes the house prices to rise. So that's definitely bad debt. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the, the bad debt is anything associated with asset prices. Student loans, presumably bad, bad for the economy because, first of all, most of it never gets repaid anyway. I suspect, uh, secondly, uh, it, it's money that's given to students. Um, I think this is an interesting example. I think students now are living in much nicer accommodation than when I went to, to university. So it's helped push up the cost of accommodation even at that sector because it's money they just have now that they didn't have in those days, uh, but they've got to pay it back. And the fact that they have to pay it back curtails spending when they're trying to uh, repay that loan. And so, and, and obviously a chunk of that money goes to the finance sector 
in interest repayments as well. So on lots of levels, student loans. Yeah, I mean, it's it, very bad. And the, the whole idea of the privatisation of education, the privatisation of funding has destroyed the university sector as well. It's one reason I'm well and truly glad to be out of it. I just was sick and tired of seeing the damage that this commercialisation of universities has done. So putting all the debt on student, again, that's another bloody Australian idea. What's his name? Bruce Chapman, who came up with the idea of the uh, HEX, Higher Education mm. Contribution Scheme. I think it actually sounds better as HEX. HEX, it's a curse. Um, it, it's been taken over worldwide and, of course, it was existed to some extent in America. And American, I think America's level of student debt is, I, I think, certainly over a trillion dollars and approaching you know, approaching $2 trillion. It's a huge slab of overall private debt. And what it means is anybody coming out of a university, uh, their first focus is paying back their student debt. Of course, it's only the middle class and poor who are doing it because the rich can pay for it outright. And they, therefore, can't afford to consume, can't afford to... Uh, buy a property, it ends up you know, corrupt, uh, collapsing the rest of the economy as well. So that's one that I know Stephanie Kelton and a few other uh, MMT people in America have been pushing for the abolition of student debt. And I think that's an extremely good idea. So government debt, we you know we we know that generally, and we've spoken about this a lot. Government debt generally is perceived by the broader population as being a a bad thing, and you know it's easy to produce scary statistics on this because in the US, for example, higher than GDP, so uh, it you know it owes more than it produces in a whole year compared to uh, it being about fifty percent or so in the late eighties. It's very easy to sell that as being a bad thing, but if um, if it isn't. Uh, when does it become a bad thing? Does it become a bad thing when you owe, owe 10 times what you produce or 20 times? Is there a, a level at which uh, government debt does become a concern? I think um, because the MMT case is that, it, uh, that there's no problem at all so long as you're issuing debt in your own currency. I really, my, my focus, this is, of course, the opposite of MMT. I think the danger is when that level of, of government money creation causes contributes to a trade deficit, which means you end up uh, importing goods rather than producing them locally and selling your assets to be able to finance that. Uh, that, I think, is a negative. And if we've seen Turkey fall into that, Turkey was running a 20% of GDP government deficit and a 20% of GDP foreign deficit. And over time, what I meant was finally there was uh, a run on Turkish bonds because they had to issue bonds denominated in American dollars to be able yeah. to buy the capital goods they needed. And, of course, they got a debt level of the people said so they just simply can't finance that. So bang, the crash and the lira and all the political ramifications we've seen out of that. So my my concern yeah. is really about the trade deficit side of things. Yeah, and, and, the, and the cost of servicing. Mm-hmm. So as debt grows, mm-hmm. you know, investors are going to see a perceived risk, aren't they? So they're going to want higher interest repayments on the bonds. Well, that no, they, in, in they fact, buy. That, doesn't, that doesn't happen. And that's where Japan's case is quite strong because, you know, people are still buying Japanese government debt when the actual return is close to negative and sometimes it is negative. So what they uh, the, 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 the state... And in, in the MMT case, and I think they carry this too far because they don't they don't take into account sufficiently the importance of credit in aggregate demand. But their perspective is that interest payments by on government debt are stimulatory because they're putting income into the um, into the economy. So they see higher uh, interest rate payments actually boosting demand rather than being taking demand away from the private sector because the government pays interest on those, the interest goes into the economy, the interest is spent, it's actually a stimulus from their point of view. But I think what they're neglecting is that that interest rate also sets the cost of credit and if you have 
uh, increase in interest rates as the, as the states was the US was doing over the last year, then that increases the cost of carrying debt which means people are likely to go from positive credit to negative credit and you'll fall back in a slump again. And I think the negative side of that outweighs the positive side, which is the one they focus upon. Because again, we know from seeing Randall Ray's uh, reply to Doug Henwood uh, in the, the critique of MMT in the Jacobin magazine and on, uh, on naked, naked capitalism, uh, Randy Ray said there that he regarded the endogenous money revolution as in quote unquote trivial because it just told us that banks, the, gov- the central bank controls the interest rate rather than control the quantity of money. Uh, no criticism of Randy meant here because it is a case of having to think this through, ideas through properly. Uh, which I've done in my debate with uh, Mark Lavoy and Brett Feibegger and Tom Pally on the review of Keynesian economics, pardon me if very long-winded here, credit creates additional demand, and that is left out of the MMT thinking. It can be included and make them stronger, but what it means is they're just seeing the interest rate boost to the economy coming out of higher rates. They're not looking at the demand in drop in credit that would come out of that, which I think far outweighs the the positive so yeah i'm yeah so i mean i think that's a good point to finish on really isn't it that um because uh, i was going to be like my last question is is debt really a bad thing it sounds like it uh you know because on the one side it's money that can be spent now isn't it it's sort of bringing mm. money forward that's why mm. in the 80s we all stopped saving and started borrowing and the economy did well out of that for a while the problem was of course we became addicted to it and we borrowed more and more at a faster rate and we were using it to buy houses. It was the speed of the increase and what we spent the money on that was the problem, wasn't it? The idea lot, of yeah. switching from saving to debt wasn't necessarily a problem. Yeah, I mean, so the government, in that sense, so long as it's careful and its foreign exchange account can run an indefinite um, deficit, the... Uh, so the government debt itself is, is you know, as the MMT crowd say, it's a, a record of how much money has been created in the past. It's a record of your money creation, not a record of your, uh, you know, burden on your future generations. Um, but private debt, private debt when it finances investment working capital for corporations is also a positive. Mm-hmm. And that's what, when you look at Schumpeter, who goes, I think made the best case of the role of what a, what a bank could be in a capitalist economy, he talked about uh banks providing working capital for entrepreneurs where he defined an entrepreneur as somebody with a good idea but no money. So without without the bank creation of credit, you would not get entrepreneurial behavior in the first instance in his simplified model. And I think as a, as a framework for the um, world in which we live, that it makes sense. So you get government debt being a positive because it provides, the, it creates the money that the rest of us spend in a capitalist economy. And you get bank debt lent to entrepreneurs or corporations as working capital as a way that creates the capacity to build the you know the productive capacity of the, the private sector mm. also another good yeah but private debt where it is simply a replacement for for what should be a government spending issue is bad debt by and large yeah that's- and then that's what we're seeing with student debt and things like that yeah yeah all right we'll one, leave it there one, 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 one more thing i'll throw in i because you imagine i'm quite a fan of crowdfunding actually it isn't just because of patreon by the way i i, I, I i'm on kickstarter and indiegogo and uh, i saw an indiegogo that i financed 19 different ventures so far about the same number on kickstarter so i, I love the idea of crowdfunding of, 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 of entrepreneurial behavior because you get the intelligence of the crowd deciding what gets funding rather than, in some cases, the stupidity of bankers. But there should so be I'd some like tax to, investment to try and drive that sort of behavior, shouldn't there? Yeah, there should. And I think that this, I would actually like to see, to some extent, is government creation of money 
to be given to people, which they could only use for crowdfunding. Mm. And then if they, they choose a successful project and get an equity gain out of that's great. If they don't, you know, that it's still money is being created. Yeah. Even before in, we get in, there, because there's a bit of yeah. a bit of convincing people of that argument. You should be able to do that money. You should be able to do that tax free. You should be able to write that off as a tax deduction. Well, again, the danger is how far you go with that. But yes, something to make it uh, attractive to do rather than at the moment you're risking your own money. Mm. And uh, you know, to some extent, we want to risk money into into existence for risky ventures that over time we will need in society. We talk about debt and we could talk all day, clearly. We'll have to leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> Good to talk, Steve. We'll catch you again very soon. Okay, mate. Bye-bye. And look, if you've got something you'd like us to talk about on the Debunking Economics podcast, you can send me an email, phil at loudmouthcoms, C-O-M-S dot com, and uh, we'll see what we can do in future episodes. That's it for today, though. The Debunking Economics podcast back again next week with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. See you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.